Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Art Wright, and I'm the, the senior pastor at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We were delighted to welcome the Reverend Dr. Paul Wallace to our church this past weekend. Dr. Wallace lectured on Saturday afternoon on the intersection of science and faith, and then he preached for us in worship on Sunday morning. His sermon that you're about to listen to is based on 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, which is the story of the prophet Elijah at Mount Horeb and God speaking to Elijah in the, in the silence. Dr. Wallace's sermon is called The Silence of God. I hope it's helpful for you in your own spiritual journey and as you reflect on what it means to be a person of faith today and to listen to God's still small voice in your life. We'd love for you to head on over to our website, www.williamsburgbaptist.com, if you'd like to find out more information about what we've got going on these days. If you click on the Grow tab and then Speaker Series, you can find out more information about Paul Wallace and his books that he's written. He's an astrophysicist and a pastor, pastor which is such a unique uh, <laughs> intersection of roles in life, and he's written some wonderful books. And we also have a video recording of his lecture from Saturday posted there as well. So we'd love for you to give that a listen if you've got a shot, uh, if you've got time. Anyways, um, blessings to you this week. Hope that this sermon will be meaningful to you as you listen. God bless. Good morning. Thank you for that reading. That was spectacular. I've heard dramatic readings before, but that was, that was a, a new thing. I need to take that back to First Baptist Church of Decatur, Georgia. Thank you for having me this morning. A Buddhist walked into a Baptist church. It's funny already, isn't it? <laughs> He attends Sunday school and the worship service and the fellowship lunch too. He has a casserole. Upon leaving, he turns and asks his Baptist friend, was that all of it? Yes, says the Baptist. I didn't miss anything, said the Buddhist. No, said the Baptist. To which the Buddhist replied, but how can you worship when everybody is talking all the time? Seven years ago, nearly to the day, I was ordained at First Baptist Church of Decatur, Georgia. A dear friend spoke at my ordination service, and he based his words on 1 Kings 19, the same story you just heard so uh, beautifully read. He chose this story because he knows me well. He knows that I love silence. He knows that I most readily encounter God in silence. I'm not sure when I first came to associate the God of the universe with silence, but a certain Wednesday night, sometime in the late 1970s, seems as good a guess as any. I was maybe about 10 years old, and I was playing a game in the church with some friends. I was running through the church. This disappointed some of the older people, the grown-ups. But it, well, I don't know what I was doing, if we were playing hide-and-seek or if I was we were racing to the Coke machine or something. I don't know what we were doing. But at some point, I had to get from one end of the sanctuary to the other. So I ran in at full speed, 
but I was brought up short by the darkness and the emptiness, and most of all, by the silence in the sanctuary. This was a large urban church with a vast sanctuary on a busy corner in one of the busiest neighborhoods of Atlanta, and the silence seemed like not merely the absence of sound, the silence seemed like the presence of something very large. Maybe, I thought to myself, just maybe, Lord God Almighty lives in the sanctuary of Waiuka Road Baptist Church in Atlanta. Also, as a side note, uh, this may be why later on when I became an astrophysicist, uh, I never really had a problem with God because darkness, emptiness, and silence and God all seem to go together so well. And I assure you, the universe is mostly dark, empty, and silent. The vast majority of it. The overwhelming majority of it. In any case, uh, this God of silence did not show up anywhere in my official Baptist upbringing, which was full of bright words and loud, happy songs. But when I walked out of the sanctuary that night as a 10-year-old, the silence of God went with me. It was a very powerful experience, and that silence has remained with me ever since. That same silence of God was with me about 13 years ago when I, went, when I spent a week at Mepkin Abbey, which is a Trappist monastery near Charleston, South Carolina. Trappists don't do a lot of talking. It was with me a few years later when I drove out of the noise and bother of Atlanta to the heart of rural Georgia to visit a friend. When I got out of my car and I opened the door, the silence of that place nearly brought me to tears. It was with me a few months ago. I was sitting outside in the back porch of my house, listening to the birds. It was an evening. The, the evening was falling, and I was present and aware at the exact moment that the birds stopped singing. I do love silence. So when Art asked me if I could preach on this passage, on Elijah at Mount Horeb and the silence that Elijah encountered there, I was quick and happy to say yes. As the curtain rises on our story, the nation of Israel, once unified, is divided. The southern kingdom, Judah, has retained Jerusalem, and that's really important because with Jerusalem came all the customs and the social cohesion that traditional Jewish religion brings. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, but has been cut off from all of the traditional religious activity of the Jewish people and the stability that that activity brings. Meanwhile, the neighboring states of Phoenicia and Assyria are rattling their sabers and making uh, international relations a little bit touchy. The late monarch of the northern kingdom name was King Omri, and he solved these problems by arranging a marriage between his son Ahab and Jezebel, who we just heard from, the daughter of the king of Sidon in Phoenicia. Notably, Jezebel was not just the daughter of a king, she was also a priestess of Baal, the god of the Phoenicians. So when Ahab ascends to the throne, Jezebel builds a temple of Baal in Samaria right there in the heart of Israel and imports a large entourage of priests and prophets to staff it. you got to staff up the temple. So she did. These moves are smart moves, internationally and domestically. 
It is excellent politics. The ship of state, once tossed, settles and moves forward. Into this scene steps Elijah. Unlike other prophets, we don't know about how the word of the Lord came to him. He never wrote anything. We don't have, know how he came to have access to the king. We know nothing really about his backstory at all. We are simply told that Elijah showed up and began, began to give Ahab an earful of hard words. That's what prophets do, right? They tell the truth to people in power. And a lot of times, of course, they die for it. He showed up and began to give Ahab a piece of God's mind. Something along the lines of, The Lord God of Israel lives and is a much better God than Baal. And to prove it, there's going to be a drought. Which there was. So the king's you know, swing toward Baal may have been excellent politics, but in the eyes of Elijah, it was pretty bad religion. Ahab does not relent. Several chapters later, Elijah returns and challenges the king and his priests and prophets one more time. Prophets, real prophets, don't give up. He came back. He wants to have a showdown. He wants to have a showdown at Mount Carmel to prove once and for all, right there, which God is better, Baal or Yahweh? Which God is really God? You may already know what happens here. You may not. The priests of Baal build an altar and call on Baal to bring down fire, to light it up. But Baal is silent. And Elijah begins to mock Baal. To make It's really quite colorful, actually. He's quite the inventive. Uh, he did pretty well on Twitter. Um, he begins to mock the prophets of Baal. He begins to mock Baal himself. And the priests and prophets of Baal grow desperate and begin to cut themselves to appease almighty Baal. This goes on all day long with not one sign or sound from their God. Not a peep. Baal is silent. By late afternoon, the prophets and priests have had it. They're exhausted. They're done. So Elijah sets up his own altar, pours water on it, and calls on Yahweh to bring fire down, to light it up. And immediately, lightning falls, and Elijah's offering is completely, instantly consumed. Pow. Zap. Crackle. Just like that. The Lord God's fireworks only make Baal's silence more obvious and more embarrassing for the opposing team. At this point, the prophets and priests of Baal, the same ones imported from Phoenicia by Jezebel earlier, are summarily slaughtered by the people at Elijah's direction. How's that for a story? This whole spectacle, and that is what it is, the decked out priests, their prayers and cries and moans, their mass self-laceration, Elijah's mocking, the fabulous shot of fire from the sky, the slaughter, is a regular pageant of sound and fury. A grade A spectacle, a circus of contention, violence, and noise. Jezebel gets pretty steamed and swears to kill Elijah. In response, and in contrast to his boldness with the prophets, Baal, the prophets of Baal, our hero turns and heads for the hills. 
His fear drives him south to Beersheba and into the wilderness beyond. He is alone and he is depressed. At what point he wants to die and he says so. I've lost my spot. It's, uh, he, is a, he wants to die and he says, there it is. He wants to say so. Uh, but per, divine provision keeps him going. That meal the angel provided for him on the hot stones tastes good. Kept him going for 40 days and 40 nights, which is, of course, Scripture's standard uh, sign saying that uh, this is a time of spiritual trial. He stumbles southward toward Mount Horeb, known also, of course, as Mount Sinai. When he arrives at the mountain, he finds a cave. He spends the night there. Now, all early readers and hearers of this story knew that when it says Elijah rested at a cave in Horeb, it means he rested in the cave at Horeb. And by the cave, I mean the cave of Exodus 33, the same one in which Moses crouched as God passed by hundreds of years earlier. So alert readers will see that we are getting set up here for a second showing of God. God's going to show up. The next day, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. I love this question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Elijah's response. It's one for the ages. This is it. This is Elijah's response from the New Revised Standard Version. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Now, at this point, I like to imagine kind of a divine eye roll. Because Elijah is a little bit full of self-pity here and really overstates both his zeal and his problem. What he says is not even true. The context of 1 Kings indicates that there are plenty of faithful worshipers of Yahweh remaining in Israel and that Elijah is not the only remaining prophet. And please note also, it was Elijah that killed the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Elijah's just tired. He's afraid. The Lord does not engage Elijah's comment. Instead, Yahweh tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain. For I am about to pass by. Again, evoking the Moses story from hundreds of years earlier, Elijah goes out and stands on the mountain. And behold, a great wind blows, splitting mountains and smashing rocks. But we are told, God is not in the wind. A lot of wind, no God. Next, an earthquake shakes the land, and Elijah himself, but we read, God is not in the earthquake. Then fire falls from heaven for the second time in this story, but God is not in the fire. So once again, we have noise and violence, we have spectacle, but this time God is not in it. It's just noise and violence and spectacle. This stands in obvious contrast to what just happened on Mount Carmel when Yahweh sent fire from heaven in a spectacular show of the Lord's presence and power. Now we have all the noise 
all the spectacle, but God is not in it. It also stands in contrast to Moses' own experience at Sinai. In that earlier drama, the Lord appeared in exactly those elements of creation from which Yahweh is absent for Elijah. For Moses and the Israelites, God was revealed precisely as thunder and smoke and earthquake and fire. That was the sign of God. At the same place, but for Moses, God was present in these things. But not for Elijah. God was not in the earthquake or the fire or the wind. For Elijah, all of this noise and violence plays prelude to a different kind of divine showing. After the echoes of thunder and wind and fire fade, Elijah hears a sound of sheer silence. Literally translated as a voice, a barely audible whisper. And the Lord was in the silence. Elijah hears it and immediately is humble and wraps his face in his mantle. The Lord was in the silence. Some years ago, my mom took a helicopter ride in Alaska. She and my dad landed on some high and remote place. The helicopter went quiet and they stepped out at once. At once, she was engulfed in a vast silence. Snow-covered mountains marching off to the margins of the world in every direction. The uncanny combination of great scale and deep silence put her immediately into a state of reverence. It was like something came over me, she said. She sensed her own small self in the face of the landscape. She was humbled. So was the posture of Elijah before the silence of God. God was in the silence. Now, the silence of God is a good word for us. This is a good word because the silence of God is not the same as the silence of Baal. Baal was silent. So was God, but they are not the same. The silence of God is not an absence. In fact, the silence of God is pure presence. The silence of God, friends, is a living thing. It is at rest, yet it is active beneath all surfaces, all appearances, all language. The silence of God is the canvas on which this world is painted. When you open yourself to the silence of God, it touches your own internal silence and you discover your original identity in God. In this living silence, this silence of God is dynamic. It is the source of all life, all activism, all works of love. Contemplation and action are a pair. You discover the silence of God not by adding things to your life, but by removing things from your life. This is how it happened for Elijah. His ego had been all but eliminated. His career was over. He had spent days without food, wandering alone in a terrible, howling wilderness. 
and in the wilderness. Why is it so special? Because you must rely on God there. Success, accomplishment, distraction, desire, amusement, these things no longer prop you up in the wilderness. In such a condition, you might come to know the great silence that has always been there, the silence of God which gives life. This is a hard and perhaps confusing word for a nation addicted to more of everything. This is a hard word for a society full of noise and ambition. This is a hard word for a hyperactive culture, frankly. That's what we are. This is a hard word even for me. I need silence like I need water, but I can't get enough of it. Sometimes I even avoid silence because silence reveals. I know a woman, very close to this woman, she cannot bear silence. She sleeps with the TV on to prevent her from hearing what's going on inside of her. Silence is apocalyptic. That word means revelation. It reveals. Silence can be scary. There's a branch of theology. It's not well advertised. doesn't get a whole lot of promotion in the popular media. uh, Called apophatic theology. Apophatic theology is a weird word. But what it basically means is that it emphasizes the otherness of God the ways in which God is not like us. And in fact, for that matter, unlike any creature or creation itself, it seeks God in silence and empty places. The wilderness is big in apophatic theology, but it's also perfectly aware that these images are also limited. Ultimately, apophatic theology is skeptical of all images and all names of God and values direct and intimate divine knowledge. It is the theology of the mystics that get a lot of press. On paper, it comes across as kind of weird, but it is grounded in centuries of contemplative practice and silence, and our present story is one of its central texts. The Lord God, who is beyond all elements and beyond all things, the Lord was not in the earthquake or in the wind or in the fire, apparently, sometimes, Even nature, in all its expanse and power and beauty, is not always a sufficient symbol for the God who speaks in silence. Elijah stands there, face wrapped in cloth, stunned by the silence. And the Lord asks again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah offers the same self-pitying response, and again, Yahweh does not engage Elijah's words. Instead, God gives our hero some instructions. Go, Elijah, anoint a new king, and also anoint your replacement. You are done. Your career is over. Just as Elijah's early work was spectacular and obvious, his late work is quiet and hidden, silent as his God. And it is this small, silent work that ultimately ensures the survival of a remnant in Israel. His quiet work was the most important work 
The Lord of silence works in silent, hidden, small ways. Elijah's career is short and stressful. He actually does very little active prophetic work. All in all, he speaks about 500 words in the Bible to kings and queens and priests and to other people. For comparison, this sermon is about 2,500 words. So in the Bible, Elijah speaks a total of about one-fifth of the words I have spoken to you this morning, and the only about a third of those are to people in power. Yet it is Elijah who shows up again and again in Scripture, who stands among the greatest of all prophets, who appears with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven, who was beloved as a prophet in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It is this man, with his short, stressful career, who knew before whom he stood, and who knew and loved the silence of God. In the days and years to come, may each of you, like Elijah, encounter the God who speaks in silence. Amen.